Well, good morning again, everybody. So good to be with you. It's my pleasure to open uh, God's Word. We're in a familiar section of the Scriptures today, continuing our series through Jesus' parables. And if you remember last week, the challenge to us, whether we're struggling with belief, which many of us are, uh, there's many in this room who are questioning the truth claims of Christianity or have real questions about that or have been hurt by the church and are still compelled by Jesus but hanging on by a thread. And what I kind of said is let's let these parables, let's, let's clear the slate of what we think we believe about Jesus and have these parables tutor us in who He is. Let's let Him tell us who He is and what His kingdom is like. And for believers, uh, we are often overly familiar with Jesus. And we need the same kind of uh, treatment from time to time. A clearing of the slate. A, a, a freshness to our ears in hearing about Christ for the first time. So all of us are in the same boat. We're seeing Jesus afresh. And it's hard when you've heard a story like the Good Samaritan so many times. But I'm going to pray that we have ears to hear because this is like a little explosive of love. It's about to go off into the room. And the shock waves from this story changed cultures and are still felt today. So let's let it disrupt our lives Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer, this is, and that's not like a lawyer like we know, that's like a Bible nerd. Behold, a Bible nerd stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to care for him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, 
the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Lord, would you open up our ears? Would you give us ears to hear this parable afresh this morning? We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. It's a challenge for us. This is a very, very well-known tale. It's a trope so thoroughly and completely saturated in our culture that people who have never read a sentence of Scripture or who don't give a lick about Jesus know what this story is about. And they would say it's about stopping to help someone in an emergency situation even if it costs you. That's what it means to be the Good Samaritan. Ah, but does it? There's layers to Scripture, you know. There's all the, and the cookies aren't all on the bottom shelf. There's lots of shelves. There's cookies on every shelf. But we got to go spelunking or climbing We want the cookies on the top shelf. And to to get those, to to unlock some of the surprises and hidden treasures of this story, we need to ask the question, who is the Samaritan in this story? And guess what? It ain't you. And it ain't me. The answer might surprise you. You might want to go right away to Sunday school Jesus. The answer might surprise you. Who is the Samaritan in this story? The tendency is to put ourselves at the center of it all. To see ourselves as the Samaritan. And while we are to learn and receive from the Samaritan, the power of this story is found precisely in the fact that the Samaritan is nothing like us. So let's ask the question. Who is the Samaritan in this story? Let's remind ourselves of the setting and occasion. There is a lawyer, a Bible nerd, a scribe, a Pharisee, who is a student of Jesus and has been listening to Jesus. And it says he comes to him to test him. Now, as I've thought about this, I don't think that this particular scribe's intention is malicious. It says that he's standing, but in that day, the teacher would be seated and the students would be standing. So he's in a posture of humility. He's learning from Jesus. Everyone has been in a class, and you know in every class there's one kid who tests the professor. We know that kid. This is that kid. And he comes with a question. It's a great question. Maybe you've never asked this question How do you inherit eternal life? It's a question worth asking. Definitely worth pondering. And Jesus says, well, what's written in the Torah? What's written in your law? How do you read it, Bible nerd? (laughs) And he answered, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. He's been listening to Jesus because we know from the Sermon on the Mount that this is Jesus' summary of the law. 
To which Jesus says, hey, great answer. Doesn't sound like you need any more knowledge, Bible nerd. Come on, son. You just need to go and live this out. Merge your faith in your life. You know, there's some people where the last thing they need is more knowledge. They just need to merge what they know with how they live. And he says, hey man, go and do it. Find the life that is truly life. And I imagine Jesus turning from him. And, and, and the, the student, almost embarrassed, he asked a question and he already knew the answer. Saying, and it says to justify himself. To say, oh, this wasn't a dumb question. Jesus, it can't be that easy. Who is my neighbor? He's saying, Jesus, don't you know that there's a great debate in our time surrounding this question? That priests and Levites and Pharisees and scribes are trying to determine exactly who is our neighbor? Is it Jews? Law-abiding Jews? What about non-law-abiding Jews? What does the law require of us in that case? What about a Jew that is ceremoniously unclean? Does my responsibility to that individual change? If someone's, you know, I was, you know, I was, today it was, uh, I was going by the Catholic Church and there's a crosswalk. And there was a family walking just outside the lines of the crosswalk. And the car in front of me didn't stop. Do they have to be inside the lines of the crosswalk to stop? Or can they just be around it? And you, you kind of get it. What about if it's not one of our countrymen? What about a Gentile? Are they my neighbor? Relig- Israel's religious de- elites were caught in this debate about how narrowly to define this command. And so the teacher is saying, Jesus, it's not that simple. It's not that clear cut. Let's theologize some more. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus, in his Jesus way, tells a story. And for those with ears to hear, It is a shocking one. Let's remind ourselves of some of it. Jesus replied, this is verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, no clothes, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. He's unconscious. Now by chance, a priest was going by on that road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side of the road. And likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. And so Jesus tells a story in which men who are in the teacher of the law, the scribes' same social class, they're clergy, they're all Bible nerds, they are the negative foils of this story. You don't want to be like those guys. And The way that Jesus tells the story is amazing because remember the context are these debates that are happening in Israel about the love command to our neighbor and how it might be amended or abrogated in certain situations. And so Jesus tells this story, it's amazing, where the 
the guy on the ground, there's no way to identify who he is. The only way to identify whether someone would be an Israelite or not would be their clothing and their speech. But he is stripped and he is unconscious. So you can't tell who he is. He could be anybody. He is every man, every woman. And so, Jesus has set it up so that it's really easy for them to theologize themselves out of the problem. Well, what if this isn't an Israelite on the side of the road? I don't know who this man is or what he's done. I don't know what the law would say in terms of this person because I don't know who they are. And then there's an added level of complexity in that they don't know if this man is dead or not. He's half dead. And their priests going to Jerusalem to work it, they're going to church. They're going, in our language, to church to preach a sermon. But he's dead. And if they come in contact with a dead man, they can't serve in church for 30 days. And so, what's going to take precedence for these men? This man's obvious need or their own ceremonial duties? And so, we can imagine the priest and the Levite flicking through the files of their legalistic minds, trying to figure out which precise interpretation of the law which will present a loophole for them to get to where they want to be. And in the end, they choose ceremony over compassion. And Jesus exposes their heartlessness here. And it's Jesus' sharp rebuke to the culture that gave rise to the scribes' questions. Here's two men who represent Israel's leadership. They're supposed to be the best of Israel. Israel's moral compass, but they have abandoned this neighbor. Rather than help him, they heartlessly pass by on the other side of the road. And their distance from that man reinforces their distance from the the heart of the spirit of God's law. They grasp the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. They were using the same notes to create completely different music. The music that God wanted to create with His law was the music of mercy and love and compassion. You couldn't hear that melody in the lives of these men. Somewhere along the way, they had lost the narrative. They had lost the music. Their hearts are far from the opinions that they profess. And Jesus calls us to care about the weightier matters of the law. He does this often. He does this in plain language to a group of Pharisees who tithe their herb. They tithe everything that they have, but they forget about mercy and justice. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Some things, in other words, matter more to God 
And He names them justice, mercy, and faith. You ought to have done these without neglecting the others. And so Israel, particularly Israel's leaders, had lost the narrative. The shepherds of Israel are abandoning the lost and ruined sheep of Israel. They had forgotten that they were supposed to help people and love people and to be a light to their neighbors, to be a light to the Gentiles, reflecting God's care to the outcast and the foreigner and the stranger. They were doing the church thing, but they were neglecting the weightier matters. And so here's what I want you to know about all that. One, that can still happen. Two, if Jesus would have stopped there, it would have been a good story. You know, don't go down this path of using the law to do something other than what I intended it for. It would have fit very well into many of the stories that Israel's prophets would have told. He wouldn't have had to say another word, but he goes on. He keeps going. There's a third person. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Three people. This kind of story would have been very well known. Two negative examples followed by a positive example. Jokes work like two. There was one guy, and he did this, and it wasn't good. And then there was another guy, and he did this, and it wasn't good, but the third guy. So it's, it's a trope that sets up an expectation. And there's always a logic to these stories. And so if I was to tell you a story about a, a general who walks down the road and then a lieutenant was coming down the road, you would expect the next person to be a private who's next in line in the, the hierarchy. Israel had lots of stories like this. We had lots of stories like this. And so there's the priest, which is like the high priest, who's the upper crust of the priest elite. He comes down the road. And then a Levite, who's a little further down the, the hierarchy, they come down the road. And the next person down the totem pole is a scribe, a lawyer. Who, a lawyer is the one asking the question. And so for moment, the scribe thinks he's going to be the person who correctly interprets the law. And listen, that would have been a good story too. The scribe who, who shows up the, the cultural elites, who, who correctly embodies the law of God, that would have been a good story. But that's not the story that Jesus tells. It's not a scribe. It's not the man himself who's the hero. It's not even a Jew It's a Samaritan. And that is an absolute bomb. Because who were the Samaritans? Quick history lesson. The Jews, when they were overtaken by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, there were some Jews who were left in the land. And they intermarried with Gentile peoples. Many still worshipped Israel's God, But they came up with different customs and practices. Most of all, they didn't worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped on a different mount, Mount Gerizim. That may not sound like a big deal to us, but where you worshiped back then was a very big deal. 
And so faithful Jews over the years learned to avoid Samaritans, regarding them as Gentile sinners polluted by Gentile customs and belief, and Samaritans frankly returned the favor. So the chapter before this, in chapter 9, right before Jesus tells this story, Jesus is walking through the land of Samaria, and he, he goes into a village, and the village rejects him, won't let him stay there because he's a Jew. And you know how Jesus' followers respond. He says, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to smoke all of the Samaritans? All that to say there is no love lost between these two groups. In 9 BC, the Samaritans snuck into the Jewish temple on the eve of Passover and spread human bones throughout the temple. Which for us would be gross, but we'd just take out a broom and sweep them away. But for them, it was sacrilege. They had desecrated their most holy space, and it enraged the Jews. And so over hundreds of years, you need to imagine this tribal conflict between these groups. Most of them don't even know why they hate each other anymore. They just do, and they've been doing it for so long, they can't imagine it any other way. And he says, but a Samaritan. Someone who had their, all their theology wrong, that was true. But more than that would have seemed unclean to the man. Distasteful. Someone beyond the pale. I was trying to think of a cultural equivalent to us. And I can just, the only thing I want you to imagine is that feeling of disgust that you are ashamed about, but that you feel when you see people with certain signs in their yard, or they voted a certain way, or you hear them say something on the internet, or they're wearing a certain kind of hat, or the hair's a certain way, and you, pr- you feel a sense of disgust. That's what he would have felt. And it is the Samaritan who comes and has compassion. And what is moving about the Samaritan's compassion is first its breath because it reaches to an enemy. He's on the road. I don't know why he's going to Jerusalem, but he's on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he can only presume that this is a Jewish man, his enemy. And his heart went out to him. But it's also the depth of of his compassion because it moved him to this costly and thorough act of love. Because the Samaritan doesn't just stop. He doesn't just give thoughts and prayers. He doesn't wait for a Jew to come by and hand him over. He doesn't call an ambulance and then, you know, wash his hands of the entire matter. The narrative slows The details are amazing. He binds the wound. He pours out the costly oil and wine. He gives up his place of privilege on his donkey. He walks the rest of the way on the dangerous road while the unconscious man lies on his donkey limo. (laughs) And then he walks into a Jewish settlement. Think about this. A Samaritan, 
with a donkey with an unconscious Jew on it. It's like a Hatfield walking into McCoy territory with a McCoy on the, on the, they don't think that guy just helped that guy. They think that guy just killed that guy. Just walking into the town in that matter would have been an incredible risk. But he takes the risk, and he goes to the inn. And he doesn't just drop him off on the, in the inn. He stays the night with him. And then he gives two months' worth of wages and says, I want you to care for him. With I don't know, what do you make in two months? Imagine giving that to the Holiday Inn guy. Say, I want you to care for this person. And if you spend any more money, I never want him to be in debt. When he wakes up, when he leaves, I don't want him to owe a thing. So whatever else you pay, I'm coming back and I'll repay you for it. It's like an A plus in love. It's like if you were grading love, and you had like the signs, you'd get the highest one. And you'd hold it up. It's hard not to be moved by what the Samaritan has done. Jesus makes it hard not to be moved. And that's important because everything in that Jewish scriber's heart would, want, had, would have wanted to resist being moved by it. There would have been a tension in his heart as he listened to this story precisely because he wasn't the hero. And you can hear it at the end of the text when, when Jesus says, which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The one who showed him mercy. Now that's interesting. Because everybody in the crowd, I think, would say, the Samaritan. The Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say the words. This man can't bring himself to say the name because it's so distasteful to him. And yet he cannot deny that the Samaritan in the story was beautiful. Jesus is forcing him through this story to treat the Samaritan as a person. In the end, he's forced to admit that the the Samaritan is someone worth emulating. And now, if you just pause for a second, you'll see the brilliance of what Jesus has just done. Yes, he is expanding the limits of what love can be. He's teaching us that you just don't love people who are like you. Your love reaches even as far as your enemies. But, in having an enemy as the hero of the story... He's challenged us to do the very thing that he's teaching us to do by listening to the story. In other words, to answer Jesus' question correctly is to ascribe worth to your enemies. Oh, dude, think about it. He's telling a story about the breadth of love which should reach all the way to our enemies, and in listening and accepting the story, we are being forced to love our enemies. The story itself is a test of love. Will you listen to the parable? Once you hear who the hero is, can you listen to it without judging? Can you learn love in the process? He's made the parable like 
the beaten up man on the side of the road? Will you stop and listen? Though it might cost you. You know, people often miss the point of the parable. We want to put ourselves in the place of the good Samaritan, but we miss its weight when we do that. Jesus is doing something much bigger, much grander. He's throwing dynamite into our understanding of love. And it's directed precisely at our tribalism, our ability to limit who we love and to love people who are like us the most. It disrupts our religious tribalism. Priests, Levites, small group leaders, and evangelical pastors still often pass by the needy person on the side of the road. And what Jesus says here in a cryptic way, he says very clearly in Matthew, 20, in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where he just says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you just love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. Everybody loves their mom. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than any other person? The Gentiles do that. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is Jesus' teaching. It's challenging for religious people. It's challenging for irreligious people who struggle with tribalism. As more and more people turn to unbelief, as more and people ask the question, how do you do life well without Jesus? The answer that people are receiving is, well, you need a tribe. You need safety. You need community. You need some way to maintain justice. So if somebody gets you, you can get them back, and you can cancel them, and there's retribution, and there's hate. And there's a lot of lip service given to tolerance and caring for people who are different than you with different thoughts and different identities. And all of that is good. But if you get into that world, there's just as many people saying, yeah, but who really is your neighbor? A lot of nitpicking about whose wounds matter more than other wounds. Whose identities are more valuable than someone else's identities. A lot of language given to care for the oppressed in our culture, which is good. But what you never hear in the secular world is that you should love the oppressor. That is the difference. That is the difference between you and the world, Christian. We love the oppressor. Can our love extend that far? That is how we will be different. And it must. 
The fact is, love is hard for everybody. Love's hard for you and hard for me. It's hard because some of us have been raised in broken families, and that makes it hard to love. It's hard because the culture we in, the culture we're in stinks and makes it hard to love. It's hard, it's hard to love because we're selfish. It's hard to love because if we're honest, there is hatred in our hearts. And so there's this wonderful standard, but, who, but can anybody love like that? And praise God that there was at least one human being who loved like that, whose love extended that far, even to their enemies, even to the oppressor. And that's the last shock, in, isn't it? It's not just that the Samaritan is our enemy. It's that Jesus must have been thinking about his own ministry. When he told this story, another outsider who's came to show the true meaning of the law, who came to expose Israel's leader, who was seen as an enemy, but who ultimately loved their enemies with unrivaled care. It's Christ. And Paul got this. So in Romans 5, he says, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are not the Samaritan. We are are the one robbed by our own sin and hatred on the side of the road, in desperate need, almost dead. And Jesus, the kindly Samaritan, comes and he pours out his life in oil and wine. And he bears his cross while we get the limo ride. And he takes us to the inn where we get the care and he pays for every sin covers every debt and gives us a home forever. And the people who get that have a chance at loving <laughs> because to be, to be forgiven much is to love much. And in the end, the parable is a portrait of the gospel itself and it points us to Christ. Jesus in His mercy acts out the gospel through a Samaritan who does not believe the right things. The Samaritan does not believe what Jesus believes. His theology would have been mistaken according to Jesus. He's a different ethnicity, a seeming enemy of Jesus. And he has that person do what is godly. And so I was just trying to think, what would that be like for us? God is like a Democrat crossing the road to show mercy and compassion to a Republican. God is like an immigrant crossing the road to show mercy and compassion and give resources at her own cost for your recovery. What enemy is in your mind? God is like an evangelical crossing the road to show mercy and compassion at their own cost to mend the wounds of the LGBTQ plus human being 
Or vice versa, God is like an LGBTQ plus human being who crosses the road to heal the wounds of an evangelical. Who is your enemy? God is like the Planned Parenthood worker crossing the road to show mercy and compassion at his own cost, seeking the common decency of a pro-life person. God is like a pro-life person crossing the road at their own cost and expense to show mercy and compassion to a Planned Parenthood worker in her time of need. Who is the Samaritan? It's not us. For Jesus to stand up in a Jewish community and say, God is like a Samaritan. I am like a Samaritan. It was bold. It was partly why they killed him. They didn't kill him for telling non-offensive stories. And if you and I follow him, what does that mean? When is the last time you got in trouble for loving the wrong people? Let's pray. Jesus, I think you meant it to be a bomb. I think you meant it to leave us thinking. I think you meant it to leave us pondering who we love and who we don't and who our enemy is and who we are and are we a neighbor and are we willing to follow you? And we just admit that we are, uh, if we have a role to play, it's in receiving your care and love for us. We've been robbed by our own sin. Some of us have been left to dead by the cruelty of others in the world. We are wounded in so many ways. And yet you through the gospel have come to heal us and you pick us up and you bring us into the inn of your church and you heal us and you give us hope. And then you send us out to be little Christs in a hurting world. Would you help us to do that? In Christ's name, amen.